everyone. Welcome to Superwomen. I am so excited to welcome Marissa Thalberg, the Executive Vice President, Chief Brand and Marketing Officer for Lowe's. Just want to brag about her for a little bit. She is a globally recognized business strategist, brand building innovator. She is known for inspiring teams to take brands to new heights, cultural relevance, and business performance. She was previously at Taco Bell, where she served as Global Chief Brand Officer, envisioning and leading the company's evolution to a culture-centric lifestyle brand. She is on the board of the Ad Council and the Orange County School of the Arts Foundation. Since she has been at Lowe's, it was recognized as the number three marketed brand of the year by Ad Age. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today. I'm so happy and honored to be here and just happy to get to have this conversation with you, Rebecca. You know, I think the world of you. Likewise. So I would love to get in your head a bit. Was marketing and branding something that you have always loved and been passionate about? Or when you went to school, what what did you think you were going to do when you grew up? You know, when I was a kid, I thought I was going to be an actress or a lawyer. And I told people and they'd laugh. But actually, it's not totally crazy when you think about, you know, you'd watch those lawyer shows. And then I wanted to be on the stage. And then by the time I got to college, I thought I wanted to be a broadcaster. So I guess on some level, I loved being a communicator and a storyteller. That was fundamental somehow in me. Um, And I had a wonderful internship. I I actually, before, you know, internships, I have a college-age student now. We know the pressure that kids have and and the impetus to do lots of summer internships. That wasn't so much of a thing when I went to school, but I I was really hungry to get these experiences and work. So I did a whole bunch of different communication-type internships. I worked for documentary film producers. I was the production assistant on a TV show, and the last one was with a big ad agency, and it was the most substantive internship I did. So I actually really enjoyed it and thereby found myself in advertising after college and then really tried to wrestle in my 20s with the creative side and the business side of my personality and my interest and try to figure out how to bring those together. So I experimented a bit. I actually left advertising and did become a TV producer for a while, but then wound up realizing that the kind of sequential career I wanted to have where I really felt like, I don't know, I'd be rewarded and recognized in ways that I wanted to was back in marketing. And and then I came back into the beauty industry and was there for many years. Clearly, you have a knack for getting the brands you work with culturally relevant, thinking about it in new ways. How did you learn how to do that? Or is that just something you feel like is innate in you? If you had to say, I do it by you know, I, I realize everyone has their own formula, but what do you think are your ways of seeing what's happening and then knowing, okay, this is what I'm going to do? I don't know the answer to that question. I think that's the part, if there's any part that for me feels the most innate, but you have to be willing to be a student of your job and a student of culture and be the, the one that connects the dots. And I think if I have any talent uh, that's particular, it's being able to you know think about how different things that don't seem connected might connect in interesting, meaningful ways and tying it back to 
consumer behavior and a business objective. And based on some of the zigzaggy moves I've made in my career and the industry moves I've made, I've had to be someone who loves the chance to learn and throw myself into new things and then bring the different experiences I've had thus far in a way that creates lateral thinking. And businesses need that today more than ever. So whereas earlier in my career, I felt like I hadn't set myself perhaps on this path of perfect clarity and perfect linear, you know, upward mobility. Now I realize um, the ability to be a lateral thinker, to draw on different experiences is really a benefit, but it took some time to reconcile all that. Yeah. I feel like hindsight, you're able to say, oh, this is how the parts of the puzzle fit. That's right. But when you're going through it, you're not necessarily like, I guess it's akin to in my world, people are like, wow, your strategy is just incredible. I'm like, we don't have a fucking strategy. (laughs) Just trying everything we could think of. Yeah. Yeah. But then you can take credit for it all having been intentional. But the reality is you took chances and you had great instincts. So that's part of it. Correct. So how do you convince, you know, I I feel like corporations can be known to be slow to move, scared to embrace change, but you have pushed the companies you worked with to do outside the box. Like no one would have associated Lowe's with a fashion week, right? Or what you've done with Taco Bell and, and those, you you thought you were walking into an entirely different restaurant and, you know, oh my gosh, we're in Taco Bell. How did you push that along knowing that sometimes these, these companies can be stalwarts? Well, I think the first really big lesson, although I had them much earlier in my career as well, was when I joined the Estee Lauder company is back in 2007. And I was brought on in a role that was a very entrepreneurial role in this very large, multi-brand, classic organization. The Estee Lauder companies has many, many luxury beauty brands. It's certainly not just the Estee Lauder brand. And so I was in one of the first, maybe the first corporate marketing, you know, executive role at the time, and also the first digital marketing job, which was kind of an interesting risk for me to take because I had threaded digital already throughout a lot of my career, but now I was going to become the owner and the leader of it. And it was intimidating. One of the big lessons was the job you're being hired for and the job you go to do are not always the same thing. So I got there to help drive e-commerce sales through marketing across all these businesses that now had dot-com businesses like Clinique.com, Mac.com. Ultimately, what I realized was at 2007, and and just time-stamped this, it wasn't even called social media yet. It was called Web 2.0, but you could see it coming and the world was changing. And I realized my job was to help bring all these brands into this new era of communications. And how was I going to do that? So I had to really teach myself, how do you create change? And I, and oftentimes we learn by the examples of what not to do as much as we learn what to do. And there was a colleague who I saw doing that in certain ways through intimidation, you know, talking in very technical terms and that can create action, but that wasn't the way I wanted to do it. And what I started to think about was what would be the barriers to change? Why would people resist change? And how could I use empathy to 
understand those barriers to, uh, to resistance and then work through them so that they could embrace change and feel good about it. And that was such an instrumental life and professional lesson for me that I think I've somewhat innately, as we said before, taken that forward into, I mean, going from luxury beauty to fast food with Taco Bell and then going from fast food to big box home improvement retail you have to think about constantly finessing your own message internally, not just externally, to get people to understand, to appreciate, to bring them along, and to get them excited to change. And then you have to find your early champions. That's the biggest thing. You're going to have your early adopters, your champions, you're going to have the people that are in the middle, and then you're going to have your people that are the most resistant to change. And you got to figure out who's who and treat them differently. I think what you said about bringing them along, it goes a long way, I think, with your customers. I think sometimes, you know, at least in fashion brands, want to hide everything and then do some big reveal with an exclusive. But we found the reverse. If we brought our customer along on the journey, let's just say for our fragrance launch or our upcoming home launch, they're excited to weigh in. They're excited to be a part of it and, and not just have the big reveal at the end. I think that's an incredible insight. And I'll tell you, my experiences with, you know, luxury fashion with designers, primarily through beauty, but luxury beauty at that time, that was a big part is the, the rules of how things done work were actually pretty rigid. They were really firm. You know, we don't, the consumer doesn't tell us what to think. We tell them. I mean, that's how advertising worked in, in that era and before. And so it was really scary to break that down and to think that like consumers would actually have a seat at the table. And what does that mean? And obviously all industries have progressed enormously since then, but you know, it took some real time and it took some real experimentation with the message and the how to find that path forward. And now, you know, and, and then the tables really turned and designers like you, beauty brands became laggards to leaders in terms of how to really embrace social media, for example. Um, and so that's just a really big but important example, what it takes to um, chip away at the resistance and find the people in the beginning who are willing to try and then see the results, see the impact. New York Fashion Week that we did together at Lowe's, trust me, I had people who were resistant because it was so different. And, um, but fortunately I had incredibly supportive CEO. And I, I also had people on the team that were so exhilarated to work on this and were so excited and, you know, new things are hard. So it puts strain on the organization to deliver it, to actually deliver all of the products and the things that we needed to make it successful. But my view when we did it together, Rebecca was, a real partnership is when you do something that's additive for both parties that neither perhaps could have achieved individually. So hopefully that's a great example of we made, you know, something really magical for you happen at New York Fashion Week in the height of the pandemic. And conversely, it was definitely a shot in the arm reputationally for us in terms of all we have to offer in home decor, which I think a lot of people don't know. And so that to me is so exciting when you can create something that's really accretive, that 
disrupts people and makes them pay attention in all the best ways. It's gratifying. I That is the communications piece that I think even in my earliest days, I didn't know that that's what I wanted to do back to your first question. But that's when work is just at its most joyful for me. Agreed. It's those fun things that you get to plan. And it's not, it's, I try and look at it as the entire experience. Obviously, the end is the big exclamation point, but I've been making a, a true sort of conscious effort, like enjoy every moment leading up to it because that that fashion show experience, let's say that's, you know, spent five months working on is only two hours long and then it's done. Yes. I also feel like for brands to stay relevant today or be talked about, there's a continuous cycle of new innovative ideas. So. How do you keep yourself inspired to keep thinking of these out-of-the-box ideas? Well, I don't feel that they're all my personal responsibility. Of course, it's it's exciting when you're the one that connects the dots. But I think what I appreciate just as much now as a leader is when you've when you've inspired that energy and that desire and ability to connect the dots in others so that ideas like this can come from all different places, that's at least as magical for me. And I feel like um, I've watched that happen in the teams I've led over the past many years of my career. And I'm seeing that happen now at Lowe's and it's it's amazing. But you have to show people the idea and you have to push them to think beyond the traditional. What I don't think everyone always appreciates because as you noted, I mean, I'm working in large corporations. These are businesses. They have financial expectations attached to them. And so I'm very, very mindful of creativity not being gratuitous, but creativity that's serving a goal. But the creativity comes in achieving that goal in the unexpected ways that surprise, delight, and get people's attention. Because we all know the hardest thing today for any of us who are in any form of the, let's call it the communications business, is getting attention because our attention is so fragmented. So that's, I guess, a long-winded way of saying sometimes I just come up with ideas, but now it's the ideas can come from anywhere on my team. And then the real question is not, do we have good ideas? but how to put them through the right filters of, is this the right time for that idea? Does it deliver on the goals that we have? Is it achievable? Is it going to have the impact we think it's going to have? So that is, you know, the process that's at least as important as the idea, uh, having the ideas themselves. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters and what do I even say other than hey <sighs> well that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier starting the chat better and dating safer they've changed so you don't have to download the new Bumble now. It's interesting to talk to different people because everyone's brains work so differently or I don't, if it's not your brain, your mind yeah, works so yeah. differently and the path to inspiration and the path to what keeps going. You know, before, before we had the opportunity to work together, I was on an entirely different creative track with the show and then yeah. 
you know, this opportunity it didn't fall into my lap because I think I was putting a lot out into the universe. That's right. When we got connected, I was like, all right, time to change gears. We get to do a show. What is that? What does that need to look like? So, well, and that's, I think that's the other part of creativity too, is recognizing serendipity and seeing opportunity and then crafting it to be something even better than what it might've been when it first presented itself, because ideas rarely come fully formed right? It's to me, that's what, what you just mentioned in terms of what, what happened for you. And the show that we, we helped work on with you was opportunity. And then seeing how it, like I said before, connected new dots of creativity for you, and then doing something, hopefully that was even better than where you first started. And that's, that's an always on process. That's an iterative process. I, I feel like that's actually a big part of my job every day is not just birthing, you know, fully formed new ideas, but taking what we're doing and constantly rethinking and reshaping and how to make it a little bit better. I mean, as a leader, that's a big part of what I actually see my responsibility as. Yeah. So I would love to dive into the pandemic because you started your job just shortly before I know it hit, right? Crazy. I signed my employment agreement New Year's Eve as we turned to 2020. Oh my gosh. I <laughs> um, was still living with my family in Southern California after having been lifelong New Yorkers and absolutely resistant to the idea of ever leaving New York. We moved five years before um, because of, of Taco Bell. And then here we were about to embark on this great new adventure. I was meant to commute for several months cross country um, as an executive mom um, so that my younger daughter could finish eighth grade in California and was all ready to go. Started in mid-February, going back and forth. And then lo and behold, came home for a few days to regroup. And here we are one year later. That was the time where California was the first state to really lock down. And I really didn't go back for weeks. So now I had to figure out how to start this huge new job and a huge new industry across the country from the rest of the executive team and my team. And at that point, everyone wasn't virtual. So it was in that funny in-between period where I was virtual and everyone was, remember, everyone was first learning how to use Zoom or Teams. And boy, was it an adaptation uh, just in terms of how to build relationships so new into this tenure. But then, of course, how to materially change everything that we were doing from a marketing standpoint. So tell me about what you had to do. How did you get creative? What was your first like, all right, we got set up. Okay, we're all on Zoom. I didn't know how to use Zoom for so long. I was using other people's accounts because I couldn't figure out how to even <laughs> make my own. What did you have to do from a marketing perspective in order to pivot? Well, the interesting thing about home improvement as an industry is when you think about a lot of retailers, you know, the sort of big, big moment of the year is is holiday, right? Uh, that that Thanksgiving to Christmas period where, you know, so much gift giving. But in home improvement, spring is that equivalent season because, you know, it's, it's a little bit self-evident, right? People are coming out of the winter and they're ready to plant and they're ready to do things in their home and think about the outdoors and spring renewal. Okay. So all of that, and we're heading into on top of everything else, 
our most important season. And yet quickly, if we can all rewind the clock to just one year ago, remember it was it was it went from not even really being on on our national radar it was this thing in china to suddenly uh we were going to lock down for a couple of weeks to now it was very very serious and here we are as a retailer and the typical mode of a retailer in marketing is traffic driving promotional types of marketing and i frankly did have a vision of changing the way we showed up in that regard in some ways, this was the ultimate accelerant of that because that tone immediately felt wrong. So the first step was to kind of triage everything that had already been produced. Remember, I was just stepping in. So of course, a lot of work had already been done and figure out what we had to work with, how we would adapt it just to be able to be present, but be present present appropriately under the circumstances. Um, and then very quickly after that started initiating new kinds of storytelling that were definitely more about creating a sense of connection and relevancy that was really, really much less aggressive in terms of selling and more about recognizing where people were. So uh, one of the very first spots we did what that was different was simply supporting this little burgeoning movement of people making signs to thank healthcare workers. And we realized our role in that was as a fellow supporter uh, of, and also a promoter of, of DIY cultures. We weren't selling you anything. We just wanted to help you DIY a thanks. And we did that spot last year, March, and it became one of the most well-received commercials in the early part of the pandemic. And and then we, you know, we thought about the changing nature of homes, which now seems really obvious. But in the beginning, it was a new insight that suddenly garages were being asked to be gyms and living rooms were suddenly becoming home offices and schools. And so plugging into that, that moment of, in the zeitgeist and doing it in a respectful way. Uh, and at the same time, also wanting to acknowledge that Lowe's is an essential retailer and we are open for a reason. And we were quickly at the same time moving very fast with full credit to my colleagues in store operations, our merchandising teams to, rec to how to create new safety protocols. We were really on the forefront of that from putting up, being among the first, if not the first, to put up plexiglass dividers in stores, floor decals for social distancing, while still enabling people to keep their homes um, up and functional by being open and available. It was an unbelievable time of transformation out of necessity. And I, I think I will look back and realize that you, you have to use crisis as, as an opportunity in a sense. And that, that's, I don't want that to sound mercenary, but in the sense that you have no, no choice but to rise to the challenge. And that's what we did. We rose to the challenge. And I think it allowed actually the transformation or forced the transformation of the marketing to happen much more quickly, frankly, than had things just been business as usual. So you sort of had the, oh my gosh, shock, pandemic happens, pivot, change everything. You were first in to make a lot of those changes. And now you're met with this overwhelming surge in demand. You know, home is one of the hottest growing categories there is. So now... Do you sort of get to sit back and relax and just watch the inbound happen? Or do you feel like you still need to innovate? Or can you take a breath? Oh, goodness, no. There's no. 
I think you know I the know answer to that there. question as you're asking it. There is absolutely no no sense of that at all. I mean, first of all, now as a business, we have to figure out how to keep this momentum going. Um, and I'd love to really prove those that think we succeeded just because of um, in business, you'd call it, you know, tailwind, tailwind from from the pandemic and people's focus on homes. I think people through this time have formed some new habits. We all know it takes a few weeks for new habits to stick. And we've had more than a few weeks to really reconnect with the importance of home and our relationships with home and desire to find enjoyment, find benefit from them, invest in them in, in good ways. But it's our job to promote that in the best possible way. And then there's the necessity part of home improvement. If something is broken, you need to get it fixed. Um, and I think that being able to support all the different facets of that, we also have um, a professional customer that we're very intent on growing share with and serving. So it is, um, it is still very much game on and building on this momentum, finding new ways to create connections with consumers to get them to want to shop and access Lowe's um, in all the ways that they might, from necessity to inspiration, to from doing it themselves to using our services to have Lowe's do it for them. I mean, it, there's just a world of opportunity here that it's incumbent upon me and my team to tap into. What, where do you get refueled? you know, personally, because you are at the helm of a huge company making huge changes. You're a mom, you're a wife. Where do you fill up? I fill up by um, taking breaks with my family when I can. I really rely on my weekends to recharge a little bit, even if it's just relaxing, getting a little exercise, going shopping, <laughs> um, reading. I love to read consuming culture. Um, I think it, it, it's all of that. It's not that complicated, but I, I do think part of my problem is my mind is always on. <laughs> so when I can turn it off in just simple ways by being out and about, being distracted with by my family, getting absorbed in a book, that's probably my best answer for you. But I don't know that I've fully figured it out even at this advanced stage of life. I think it's a constant quest, to be honest. Yeah. Sometimes I'm like, I have so much work ahead of me. There is no opportunity to recharge. And sometimes the most therapeutic thing is throwing my phone as far away from me as I can and being like, I don't care anymore. If there's a fire, I don't want to know about it. Uh, you know, I am accused constantly by my family and they are not wrong of being absolutely, um, you know, attached to my, to my phone and it doesn't leave my side very often, yes. which is probably a whole other topic of conversation we can delve into. Yes. Screen time. But, you know, listen, I, I, I found an organization almost 20 years ago now, which is crazy called executive moms. And it was back, you know, soon after I had become a mom for the first time, pre-social media. So, so much of our world and the way we connect and find community has changed since then. But I was really hungry to find examples of other great women who were doing it. I didn't want to be told in a really prescriptive way, here's how to do your life better. I didn't need that kind of pedantic advice. I needed examples. I needed commiseration. I needed community. And it didn't exist even in New York that 
this bastion of work. Um, and so I wound up founding it. And so I learned a lot about what it takes to um, figure out how to be an executive and how to be a mom and feel good, maybe not perfect. In fact, definitely not perfect all the time and all those things, but just to feel really good about both sides of that equation. And and I think part of that is being able to answer a question like you just raised honestly and say, it, you know, I'm not going to tell you I get up at four in the morning to exercise because I don't. And I don't know how other people do it. I like sleeping. I need to be tired, you know, <laughs> like, I, I mean, I'm not for as high energy as I am. I can completely be a couch potato sometimes on the weekends because I get tired. Um, but that's that's the reality as much about talking about recharging is not, I don't want to paint this sort of ridiculous picture that, you know, I'm out always doing community service activities in my free time. I do that too, but you know, I give on, I'm on boards and all that, but to me, it's, it's more important to acknowledge just being human and having moments of just wanting to like curl up with my daughters and watch a movie. And that's to me, recharging. And then being able to just have time, you know, I always think of it as like the shower time, right? When you're, or when you're driving or something, when your brain is just going and that's where sometimes the ideas do hit and then having ways to turn that off sometimes too. But it's not a simple answer for me. (laughs) And I think that's important to be honest about. I'm glad that you're honest about that because- I think sometimes women hold each other to these unrealistic highs or they use their imaginations and embellish them to be that way. And um, it's not always the case. It's not always the case. And social media is a blessing and a curse in that regard, because even for those of us who really do try to paint a real picture of our lives, of course, the things that we're inclined to post are biased in some ways or paint a a particular picture of our lives. And it can be really hard to look at that and not wind up comparing yourself unfavorably. No matter how successful we are, there's that tendency. And I think it is even more particular to women and, and even more particular to high achieving women to still feel like we're not as high achieving as some of the images we see of the people we know. And it's tough to to remind yourself that you're probably achieving so much more and more successful in many dimensions of your life than you might be giving yourself credit for. That insight was actually one of the one of the big galvanizing points that I found in the early days of executive moms where I'd see all these women and they were so much more together than, you know, looking at them than than maybe the way the media was projecting working moms and I felt that that realism was actually as inspiring as the idealized version or the best moments of accomplishment that all these women legitimately had to share. That's very important to me and has been for many years to project vulnerability, project humanity, to not have it all look perfectly glossy, and and at the same time relish and celebrate my own accomplishments and the accomplishments of the women and men around me. Well, thank you for being honest and real and keeping it honest and real. (laughs) Thank you. Is there a piece of advice that you'd love to pass on either that you learned the hard way or someone gave you that was really helpful in your journey? I think that when you're young, and I know when I was young, I was extremely impatient and had expectations on myself that were really daunting in terms of what was I, what I was supposed to achieve by when. 
and, um, you know, seeing other people and feeling like their careers look like sort of a very straight line rocket ship trajectory and mine had some twists and turns. And it's only through the rear view mirror that I can look at those and say, well, um, they all are part of the journey and I learn things all along the way. So the best advice is to be open to opportunity, understand that the fine print on risks is that they're risky and you're going to fail a little bit along the way, or you're going to have things that maybe better said than fail aren't going to pay off exactly the way you had dreamed and hoped. And resilience is the number one predictor of success. So build your resilience, build your positivity to take the best of situations and recognize that there's always, almost always going to be things that aren't ideal and use those things to keep propelling you forward. I wish someone had really painted that picture for me with more clarity when I was younger. I think I could have been a little bit easier on myself along the way. Yeah, for sure. I think I think what you said about resilience, it's the number one ingredient. You know, I, mm-hmm. I saw this post, someone was angry that people say the, the key to success is hard work. Like, and the girl was like, yeah, I'm working hard. It's not working. But I think the resilience is a factor that more people need to ensure that they enter into the the cake they're baking. You know, I've told that to my own daughters this year. I mean, lots of things for many people have not worked out the way they want. And I'm not talking, of course, on the, in the most profound sense of the lives lost through the pandemic, purely just situationally beyond the, you know, the lives lost and the health impacts of the pandemic. The fact that I have, you know, teenage and uh, college student, high school student who, lives have been totally disrupted. The fact that I've made the move across the country in the middle of a pandemic. And as much as it's a really hard lesson to internalize when you're 20 or 14, as my girls are, I think they do understand because we've talked about it, that they're learning resilience. They're learning how to build different muscles than maybe some of us had to build at their age. And that as much as maybe the circumstances in the now haven't been ideal, that they can carry this forward into their adult lives and turn it into a, a positive of strength. And, you know, I, I think that that's, that's the best cheerleading we can give each other when things aren't quite the way we want it to be. Not in a false way, not in a bright sighting way, but in a recognition that you find your strength through these experiences. And the down moments are temporary. It's how you, you kind of see yourself through them and, and use your your, your your army of supporters around you to see yourself through them that is is really the ultimate test of our metal as we proceed through careers and life. And uh, that's about as philosophical as I can get. It's perfect. You're giving me so many great sound bites. I'm going to have trouble picking them. Last question. What would we be surprised to know about you? Could be a quirk, a habit. Hmm. There are some funny ones. You know, I think because the parts that are more known about me, like I love theater, I'm artsy. I think the fact that people would be surprised about is I'm kind of a geek when it comes to to brain games like Sudoku and puzzles. I love puzzles. I find that a, kind of an addictive way to your earlier question about how do you turn off is that's one of my best ways of just distracting myself and actually quieting my brain a little is to throw myself into all different kinds of games and puzzles. So I think that's one of my funny little secrets that not everyone knows about me. 
I'm happy you do puzzles. I got into them this summer and I found that when I was doing them with my daughter, not only was it great time spent together, but it calmed me down a lot. So I, I love I you're an avid puzzler. I, I am. And it's, it's kind of funny that I have all those little puzzle games on my phone, but, and I, my family will sometimes tease me about it and I've rotated which ones I do, but I actually have found it a helpful way. Like I can still think about other things when I'm doing some of them, but it's it, in an odd way. It helps me focus my thoughts um, and distract me at the same time. So that's a fun little ridiculous piece of trivia. I love it. <laughs> Thank you so much. Where can people follow you, continue to read about and support your journey? Oh, thank you. Well, my Twitter handle is still an, you know, reflection of the organization I founded all those years ago. So my Twitter handle is Executive Moms. Everywhere else, you can follow me on Instagram, for example, on LinkedIn through Marissa Thalberg, just my full name. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. What a pleasure to get to do this with you. Thanks for listening, everybody. And don't forget to head over to RebeccaMinkoff.com. Show your love and support for the brand. Buy something for yourself. Buy something for another. And also don't forget to try my new fragrance. Again, it is available at all Nordstrom, Macy's, Scentbirds, and Birch Boxes, as well as our site.